So I'm wondering just where did that come from? You know, is it TV or did you pass on from your parents to child? You know, there's, I, I, I don't know where it comes from, but there's a, I mean, I, I think that the Judeo-Christian ethic about original sin actually pervades an awful lot of stuff. It's actually a root of many, many, many things. And like an archetype. Yeah. yeah I think so too. Because it doesn't exist. The original sin is not prevalent in a Buddhist country. They don't have that. You know, so they don't have that whole bias. So there's all kinds of stuff. It's normal in a Buddhist culture for people to contemplate their own goodness. You know? So, you know, for us, what seems like, you know, bedrock, like totally not negotiable, is actually cultural. And it isn't easy. It actually takes practice to cultivate our own goodness, to think about it, to reflect on it. But it actually, it's its really helpful to do that. You know, so, like, you know, when we're thinking about just to balance out, so it's not as a way of avoiding that there are things that we need to work on, but as a way of saying the context, that the overall picture is actually one of health and well-being. Rather that, you know, the whole thing is messed up, that we need to actually bring health to something that's fundamentally not okay. But, you know, you know, New Year's Eve ceremonies, when we do our little, you know, whatever, paper ceremony, you know, when we talk about the things we want to let go of, you know, rings. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this opportunity to think about the things that you know, that are wholesome or good, and it's, this is usually a very short list. Mine was really long. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Because that's something I usually focus on, mm-hmm. but it's like I still have it up on my own, too. It's two-sided piece of paper. It's like, oh, there's a lot of gifts there. Mm-hmm. But still, I focus on, oh, I have to, you know, shovel the coal, put it in the fire, instead of really playing with the gifts and realize, you know, and I mean I think also it's contextual because like I've known with that for myself if I was in the middle of a very intensive process around a particular phase of work you know you're in it you know and that's what you're focusing on and that's it's very alive for you and then when that bit is finished it's oh okay so it's not the whole thing anymore but it, you know for our time it feels like it's really those are the reference points and things are organized around that. But I think for us in our culture, you know, we need to be really careful about some of the ways we can use the Buddhist teachings to reinforce stuff that's already very strong in the wrong way. So like the contemplation on the first noble truth, we need to, as often as we contemplate where there's suffering, we need to contemplate where there's no suffering. You know? Reading a lot of. Have you heard of Muji? The guy who's a non dualist. I just heard about Muji. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. We were just talking about it. Yeah. I haven't read him, though. I don't know his work. But I know that, you know, the Advaita, I know some of the Advaita stuff. I don't know particular expressions of it. But like right now, I'm reading Ramana. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, Be As You Are. Yeah. It's just interesting to me how, because I studied with Gangaji for several years. Yeah, it's like even though they're all in me it's hard to know like okay when I'm studying Buddhism 
meditating and stuff, it's really confusing after being in the non-dual path because you're never letting go of the self and not having a self. Leave yourself at the door kind of thing and walk out without it. It's like, it's, it feels like a lot of work. You know, like we're so used to, I'm so used to thinking of myself as a self and my problems as my problem, you know. And, it's, and so it's confusing to me. Like I have all these layers in there of teaching and then I have Buddhism. And so I'm not always, like when you're talking about what to focus on, when you talk about the personal truth or focusing on the goodness. And it's confusing because I'm like, I'm, I'm have a self, I'm bringing a self, I'm doing affirmations, I'm pumping myself. And I, you know, it's like hard to know what what's really mine or what really serves um, what my goal is. I mean, I think in that, in that level, I mean, I would understand that to be more the place that many of us get mixed up in, which is, is is that, you know, when we're talking about a self in Buddhist language, we're talking about the permanent entity that we identify when the I am comes, the result of what we're thinking of, okay? But in psychological language, there's a developmental process that's absolutely fundamental to have a sense of where our boundaries begin and end and, you know, who we are developmentally. And all of these things get mished up because when we're talking about self, it's the same word, but it actually means very different things. And so, you know, when part of what our work is is, is to, to repair damage of what happened when we were little because we didn't actually have enough cohesiveness to allow that healthy self-structure to form, there's work to be done to be able to let that grow, Okay. We don't want to leave that at the door. We want to actually grow it, you know. And the languaging isn't very sophisticated because the word seems to be the same word and it means totally different things. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate the confusion, but I also appreciate that it's really important not to throw everything out the door because it's supposed to, doesn't, I mean, it sounds like it's the wrong thing, you know. It's really important to have good boundaries. It's really okay to say no. It's you know it's important to be able to trust another person that you'll be ta- your basic needs will be taken care of. All of those things are developmental tasks that happen when there's a bonding with a primary caretaker that you can trust. You know, and when you don't have that, then those basic things are not um, strong, and there'll be places where that bleed through in other areas. And so, you know, one of the things that's a really common issue is, is that people are wanting to use the transcendent teachings in order to not have to do this this work, you know, the developmental work of, of learning to trust and learning to find out who we are and learning to see where our boundaries are and learning to release the shock or trauma that's in our system and those things were, were cut across in ways that were really completely not okay, you know. And so it takes a certain amount of sophistication rather than a kind of just blanket, just let go and everything will be okay. And some wise teachers, like I don't think Adiyashanti gets mixed up, I think he's pretty clear, you know. He just, I haven't seen him get mixed up at all, but I have seen other teachers get mixed up. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, their understanding does not, is not in accordance with mine in the sense that, you know, they can say, you know, there's no need for any kind of psychological work. And it's like, man, you and I need to have a talk. 
live with nuns. <laughs> what I like about non-duality is, the, is the, the sense of peeling away the layers and, you know, of, the, of the self, the little s self, to find the big s self. Peeling back the layers and, you know, when you, when you, you contemplate who am I, and that's so amazing to me. It's just to me, it's there's just an awareness. That's the bottom line. It's the awareness. And so you can have the awareness of the larger self, and you can have the awareness of the self, the body, in this conditioned environment, conditioned world. And that's it. Just is. That's what it is. It's all. All of it is. You're all that. You're all that. Can you talk more about the languaging of non-duality and why that speaks to you in ways that the Buddhist teachings um, don't? Like, what is it about it, that languaging that for you is so nourishing? You know, I don't know that it that there's a difference to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think I see that. And... It seems it just was a, it seemed to be an easy extension from Buddhism. I still consider a, I'm a Buddhist, but there's just a I just took an, an, another route with it. Yeah. Because yeah. the Buddha talks about the conditioned and the unconditioned, and you know I don't think he's no one's saying that they're separate. That that really. I, I think Buddhism speaks to non-duality in, in my in my perspective. So I don't see that I you know I don't. Although other people that I know who who I've studied with do consider themselves uh, that abide is separate from Buddhism, and I don't know. Maybe I just haven't had that level of awareness yet, but they seem to complement one another. Well, I know certainly within the Buddhist teachings, there's non-duality as part of what one experiences. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like non-duality is not part of Buddhism. It is very much. You know, I, I think maybe, you know, the, when you talk about the Eightfold Path, I mean, I think the Buddhism gives you a little bit more of a responsibility. Yes, I think the path is a lot clearer. Yeah. The path is a lot clearer. I think in the Advaita traditions, the path is not as nearly as clear. No, I think that's true. Yeah. And and so I don't know when people are saying that, you know, Advaita is a different path, if they're talking about the, the realization aspect or they're talking about the path aspect. Mm-hmm. Good point. I don't know. Because, you know, for me... I think the realization aspect is similar. I'm not a scholar to be able to differentiate and to name the kind of micro-mind movements or framing things in a way of being able to take different philosophies and say, this is going to lead to a different path. My brain does not do that. Mm -hmm. I'm a contemplative, and so for me, where I go is in terms of experience. And I know that experience of of, of spaciousness uh, that comes with just knowing that everything the awareness that comes with everything is part of what happens with Buddhism, with the meditation that opens up with that. 
I know that to be true. Mm-hmm. But I also have heard some Advaita teachers talking about, you know, the fact that because there's no self, then you aren't, you know, you know, people, they say things that are, you know, shocking about there isn't anybody who's actually performing any wrong action. Okay? And while um, that's true on an ultimate level, what that is very easy to do is to make people feel that it doesn't matter what they do. Right, that there's no work to be done. Right. I think that's what I was going at, too. And and not only no work, but it actually is okay no matter what they do. And, Mm -hmm. And that creates... That's using the transcendent in order to dismiss what's going on in the conditioned in a way where they're saying that there's no consequences that are involved. <laughs> right, and that to me is totally wrong view. Yeah. You know, that's I haven't seen. I, I, we haven't. Yeah. That has not come. That is not part of our group when, when we talk. Mm-hmm. That is not the approach. And, and then from my readings, that's not. Gangaji's book. You are that. Well, I get that. I do get that, but I don't see that that that's a, um, sort of a a blanket permission just to be. So I think I really think that they there's a complement between the two. That's very healthy for me. She's really clear in her teachings too that it doesn't give you you know just because it's the ultimate reality it doesn't give you carte blanche to go do whatever they still do no harm mm-hmm. so that's a, that's a given it's just realizing that we perceive ourselves to be blah 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 because of the thoughts and we're following the thoughts and we're making stories and you know trimming them together or streaming them together but yeah she makes that distinction at least in her teachings really clear that it's that doesn't give you to go out and do whatever mm-hmm. you're still in this body you're still in this life you're still mm-hmm. you know held responsible so to speak it's still really perplexing in me, though. I, I still think I, uh, when I'm in a lot of pain, I think then I go for that path. Because I'm like, oh, nothing, you know, there's no one here, good. <laughs> you know. But then when I really need to, I'll drop into, like, I, li- I listen to Honey um, Pema all the time. And um, she's so good about the step-by-step, the emotions, being with, sitting with. Um, there's so much compassion and love and tenderness that that feels better in me. And then when I all of a sudden get something on Facebook about Muji or the whole non-duality, I'm like, just leave yourself at the door and this, and I'm feeling, oh, oh, you know, I'm doing it wrong again. You know, I'm, I'm focusing too much on emotion. So it, it's, it's an interesting, perplex, it's, it's a com- complex rather. I mean, that, that's the downside of having all of the different million, billion different kinds of approaches and things that are like at, the fac- at Facebook. Yes. Yeah. Oh. And you can be in the middle of a flow and it feels quite comfortable and then somebody else's idea comes up and then it's like, then there's this question, this self-reflective doubt that then posits oneself as wrong in contrast to this new idea that's coming up. And that is very confusing, you know. It is very confusing. Um, it takes us, you know, a fair amount of groundedness to be able to navigate different styles and approaches and methods and teachers and all the rest of that in a way where it, uh, one is able to to move through all of that in a way where there's a sense of cohesiveness and clarity, particularly when there's certain kinds of languaging that tends to be opposite. 
The languaging sometimes is problematic, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. So, like, you know, well, particularly in Vaita, you know, the whole thing is to is to find the self with a capital S, and in Buddhism it's to let go of the self. You know, the self doesn't exist. And so it's, it's easy to see that these two things are... Uh, it seems like it's difficult to reconcile that, unless you understand what these things are actually talking about. So anytime we're stuck in a conceptual framework of trying to use our concepts in order to get bigger frames of references, it's very limited, you know, how how much we're going to be able to understand. But like Cindy, what you were saying in terms of really getting it, that that's, you know, the, that underlining everything is an awareness. And that awareness has the capacity to be present with the, the, the conditioned aspects that, you know, come yeah. and shift and change to know them, as well as something that doesn't, you know, that quality of awareness itself, which actually isn't shifting. It's one of the things I said to Denise after we took a hike the other day, the three of us, and Denise is my partner. I just said, you know, Tanisanti, her awareness is so in tune. And and I, I just, it's just amazing. your process mm-hmm. and at the moment a lot of it at the moment mm-hmm. it's in, you know I, I'm, I'm imagining that you have Marcia I can't speak about it for you I, want, I have awareness a lot of times after the fact Or sometimes in the middle of it, and, but I can't really, I can't really um, be present with it all the time. It's kind of a little delayed. My awareness of the moment it's delayed a lot. And with each of us, we start where we're at, and then we move closer into the present moment, arriving in the present moment by releasing our resistances. I mean, that's been my path. Mm-hmm. And the more I am able to release the resistances, the less short of a gap between, you know, where, when the awareness arises and, and my self-reflective knowing of it. So I'm more able to be present with what's going on. And the resistance is what? I don't want to feel it. I don't want to know about it. It's somehow conflicting with the idea of who I think I am or what I should be feeling right now, you know? And that resistance is usually the thing that causes the delay. Now, when I started meditating, I had huge delays. Huge, huge, huge delays. And even still, it can be stuff goes on. I don't know what I feel about it until the next day or a while afterwards. So, it's you know, it's not like it's always that way. Mm-hmm. But that is my practice, you know, to be present with what's arising and to be in the moment with it. So I'm not a, I'm not a scholar, you know. I don't have huge languages of vast treaties that I can... I, that's not my style. I'm a practitioner. You know, that's what I do. You're a bit of a scholar in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I know how to show up. I know how to get down and show up. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not, I'm not scared. You know, yeah. 
And so that means that I've been through all kinds of stuff that's like, oh my goodness. But it's, yeah, get down and show up. You know, that's what you do. And there's a way that this emerges to work with it. That's my practice, and that's what I share with people. But what I was so excited about with this women's facilitator stuff is, is that, yeah, okay, so I've been doing this for a long time now, and I can see that there's a kind of bias that is very much organized around what works for men in terms of the language, in terms of the structure, in terms of the meditations, in terms of everything. It's all around what is useful for male conditioning. And that's not my conditioning. So I need to understand all of that without dismissing it, but actually apply it in terms of the context that I'm in. And it, you can, it's totally possible to do that. But then it's like, yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I know how this thing works. <laughs> how is the conditioning fundamentally different between men and women as it applies to Buddhist practice? I don't know that it's it's conditioning. It's not right. It's not right. The conditioning is yeah. Yeah, it's not fundamental. But the way men tend to be organized is, I mean, like what men tend to do is try to duke out who's alpha, okay? Mm -hmm. And then whoever's alpha, everybody wants a strong alpha in the pack. They all look to the alpha, okay? For women, we tend to blend and try to you know to do circle. You know, we don't want an alpha. We don't want to stand out. We want to actually bring everybody in. Okay, so even something like the bowing practices, all right? So in a monastery where you've got men who are used to duking it out and being tough, it's incredibly useful that there's a whole kind of bowing in process and bowing out process as a way of signaling alpha, but also normalizing everybody else in relationship to them in a way that helps them relax, okay? For women... It doesn't have the same effect on me where it helps me relax. It helps me. I feel more tense. Okay? So, and like in the Tibetan practices, you know, the Nundro practice is to do 100,000 prostrations. Okay? And 100,000 this and 100,000 that. But the 100,000 prostrations for male conditioning is brilliant because they need to soften that sense of, you know, and, and actually humble themselves into something that is awesomely more powerful than they are. For women, we need to do 100,000 stand-ups where we stand up and take our space and speak our truth and we don't blend with the whole space and try and include and, you know, get everybody to be in there together. We actually say, no, this is how I feel. This is what I see. This is my experience. This is my understanding. We stand up rather than bow down. So it's opposite. It's absolutely opposite. You know, it's... I mean, certainly... In our culture, there's all kinds of... It's not like there's just male and female and it's black and white. There's a whole continuum and there's lots of women who have lots of very kinds of of solar energy and they cut across the normal uh, stereotype of what we think uh, women are, okay? But there's also, like, this whole idea of being nice, you know? Okay, so in the Buddhist teachings, there's a lot of teachings around being compassionate and wise and nice and all the rest of that. You know, we need special learning how not to be nice. You know, how to interrupt people, how to, if somebody's being obnoxious, to not let them railroad the whole show. 
you know, how to create appropriate boundaries. If somebody has ruptured the safety, how to nail that, hold that, reflect that, and recreate it. That's not nice. It's compassionate, but it's not nice. So we take the teachings on loving kindness and we use them to reinforce the stuff that we're already too strong with. We need to take the teachings and use it to get in touch with this, with the things that allow us to have more sense of agency and being able to speak up and speak out and say, no, that doesn't feel right at all. And so fundamentally, you know, the nature of the mind is not at all different, you know, between genders. There's no... There's no characteristic in the nature of the luminosity of the mind that's going to be different between a man and a woman. But our conditioning, the way we perceive ourselves, the way people perceive us, the kind of things that we've lived through, are very different. I guess I was asking, so, I mean, you're talking more about how we relate to each other, whereas the actual, you know, where suffering is with the attachment and aversion, that's going to be the same for both. Atta- yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, atta- I mean, the nature of attachment and suffering is going to have similar qualities. Where it shows right. up is different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, like on the full moon walk, you know, somebody twisted her foot, and so we were trying to get back to cars to get back to pick her up because it was too far for her to walk. So I flagged down a car. First car was a woman. She didn't want to pick. She didn't want to take us in the car. Mm-hmm. I said, "I'm a nun," and it's like, "And I have an ID. I can show you I'm a nun." <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not so sure about this, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, for a woman to have a strange person in the car, there's a whole lot more mm-hmm. feeling of vulnerability than for a man to have a person in the car who's not familiar. So she couldn't, it didn't work out with her, so that's fine. She left, and the next person was a man in a pickup truck. Absolutely no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Now, fundamentally, their mind streams are not fundamentally different, but their conditioning is. But I think there's a real wisdom in learning how to stay focused on what one knows and the kind of train of thought that one's involved with and being open to what everyone else is saying. Because when you're doing something that's working for you, that's all you need to be doing. You You don't need to be open to what everybody else is saying, you know? And then when stuff comes up where it's time to shift or change or move into another thing, then that's useful. But it's too confusing to have to make sense out of what everybody else is saying and doing when you're in the middle of a particular flow, you know? Like my friend Bert, you know, he's got prostate cancer, and he's doing a million different health things. And a lot. He's doing a lot of them. But it's like he's got, you know, his plate is full. He can't have, you know, it's like, you know, he's at capacity with how many different things that he's doing. And so it's not like he doesn't listen to when other people have other ideas of different things that he can do, but he's he's discerning about what more he can pick up and work with and some sense of are these things compatible or not compatible, you know. And that takes quite a lot of perspective to say, well, I'm doing five different things and this one is actually not compatible. It's not that my plate is full, it's actually not compatible. It's taking me in a different direction. And that's an awareness. Such a keen awareness. Yeah. That's a aw- yeah, I don't know. That's an awareness and it's also it's an informed awareness. Yeah. Because you can be incredibly aware of what's going on in the present moment and not have that kind of knowledge. Right. 
So, like, for example, if you've done radiation treatment, you don't want to do anything that takes the free radicals out of your system because the free radicals is going to counteract the effect of the radiation. The way the radiation works is by creating free radicals. That's actually how it's supposed to do what it does. Although I've had people do 10,000 milligrams of vitamin C during their chemo, and they came out of it great because they did it. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's, there's never, to me, there's never an absolute. Yeah. And I, that, to me, is what we're talking about. It's like, I look for an absolute. This is the absolute teaching. Everything about it is blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, I'm being betrayed. I mean, it's a crazy thing, but that's how yeah. I look at it. Yeah. I want to fall all the way into this and know that I'm falling the right way. Yeah. Well, you know, there are very few teachings that are absolute. Most of them are very contextual. And that's one of the things which is like, that's part of our growing up is to learn that most teachings are contextual, they're not absolute. And so the growing up is to acknowledge the longing for absolute safety is actually coming from a very tender place that needs attending to. Okay? And then, then when we have been able to attend to that, then we can see that is coming from the longing for absolute safety that is actually not useful in this particular circumstance. We can it track it. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't come. We can, we can track it that it's actually coming from that psychological developmental need that is still healing and not bring it into all of these other places. Then it makes much more sense when we feel devastated because it's not absolute. You know, why we're so upset. I mean, I, something happened. I couldn't believe it. I, this was, what color, it was this color. And I wanted to dye it. And I have had colored things this color, and I put them in a chocolate color, and it comes out this color. And I was hoping that that's what was going to happen. Now, it was cotton. It was 100% cotton. And usually the only time if I have something this color and it comes out this color is when it's polyester. Okay. So I had pure chocolate brown dye, and I put it in a pot with pure chocolate brown dye. It came out pure chocolate brown, and I was devastated. (laughs) (laughs) For two days, I was devastated. And it was like, wow, that's a really strong reaction to put something in a chocolate brown dye, have it come out chocolate brown, and be devastated. (laughs) But there was a whole reason why, mm-hmm. you know. And so when I was able to unpack the reason why, then I could say, oh, I understand now. You know, why this is like that. Growing up is a really good term. Isn't it? Yeah, growing up is a really good term. Yeah. I, when you guys were just talking, I, I was thinking about my, my growing up in, in my practice. and. Um, I think it has to do with, uh, there's an incident that just happened that I'm not going to really go into, but I, I thought to myself, oh, you're kind of, you know, you kind of handled that okay. Yeah. You know, and it's that, and, but yet you don't really know how this is going to work out, but I think it's my, my and to use Pema's term, Comfortable with Uncertainty, her book, I think my practice has given me that, that's the developmental level that I've gotten to and it's a wonderful thing it's not always consistent but I'm much more comfortable with uncertainty whatever it is issues with people health, aging whatever it is 
there's a little edge that's a little more comfortable. There's no need to have everything okay. It's just to, and that's what the growth is. Yeah. That's what the growth is with the with because it's not okay. And, I mean, you can say, you know, I can say, I can say, oh yeah, this is impermanent, and so you know, it's going you're going to move through this. And and I may, and I may not. But there's but there's a better understanding of my own comfort, my own safety, going through uncertain times because of my practice. Does that make sense? Of course, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that's curious for me is this is that the way we have, or the way I have used, you know, all kinds of good practices and good ideas and all the rest of that in order to defend myself against actually feeling what I was feeling. And so then I got more skilled at just feeling what I was feeling. Then my, my I wasn't using the practices to defend, but then to support. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly, yeah. So, you know, so you can use the idea of impermanence as a way of not feeling. Right. Right. Yeah. Which, which I do sometimes, yeah. but yeah. I'm also more... Uh, it's more accessible now for me to to just be with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fabulous because for me that's where the freedom comes. Mm. There is a sense of freedom with it. Yeah. It's because you're not trying to make it different than the way that it is. Right. Yeah. It just is. And there's a freedom of knowing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a gift. It's an incredible gift. Because that space opens up into the whole universe. You know, we can actually take that with us wherever we go. I noticed for me in that that situation, like recently I asked a gentleman to co-lead workshops with me and he was very in. And then a week or two down the road I could feel he wasn't in and it was like... And he had just separated from his wife and he said, I'm not comfortable leading with you. I don't know you well enough. I've never led with you. I'm already in an unstable place. And for me it's like I'm ready to walk in the studio, you know, not having any format and I'm really comfortable. But get me in a group of people that I don't know I'm really uncomfortable. So my being comfortable with uncertainty mm-hmm. it's when it's, yeah, when it's something that I'm really in my body and comfortable in my body because it's very essence-oriented. I can go right, 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 right. And I think that's a <coughs> part of our growing up is to learn that in the places that we're a little bit more tender and raw, we need to take a little bit more care. Mm-hmm. You know? Or not even tender and raw. Like, you know, I have had you know, a container of skin lotion for a year. And I never put it on my body. And then I put it on my body like, you know. (laughs) You're putting it on your body. Why don't you just enjoy putting it on your body and take time and actually do it nicely? So I have all practice now. When I finish with shower, I put on the cream and I put it on nicely. And I enjoy it, you know. So it's not so much that it's tender. It's just that it's unpracticed. I'm unpracticed in taking care in that kind of a way. Or, you know, I'm forever wolfing my food. And it's like, so most recent practice is be with the food when you're eating it. Enjoy it. Chew it. Taste it. You know, slow down. You know, difficult practice. Difficult practice. 
face. You're right, though. You both you said that that when you're the areas that that come up that are uncertain areas for you, vulnerable for us, that you know that takes a lot more to be comfortable with that. I would like to challenge myself with that more. Mm-hmm. But it's wonderful to to sort of <coughs> reap the rewards, however small or subtle with the practice, you know, and different levels of it from when I started sitting years ago and now, you know, it's really, it's really quite profound. And that's what's useful about reflecting on goodness is actually to take stock of how one has changed because of the application of practice over time. You know, it's really important to do that, to notice. Yes. You know, and to notice that, you know, it's not that being uncertain is always okay, but you have a sense that you can navigate it. You can actually go through it. You know? Big difference. Yeah. Really, really notice. It's a big difference. And notice the difference in the way that it allows you to be in the present now. Really important. Yeah, I see a lot of growth. Just some of the things you guys were talking about, awareness. Um, and the moments and things that come up with you talk about you die and you're really upset. Like I look back on some of the things that happened in my life and I realize the things that were really difficult at the time, um, at some point or another, they've come back where I've learned a lot about myself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, had, had that not happened, I don't know if I would have figured that out about myself. Mm-hmm. And so now, uh, I mean, there are some things that happen in my life that I'm just like, God, I wish that wouldn't be that way. But I know that there's... Um, there's still a lot of learning that I have to do in that, and um, and something good's going to come out of that. So I don't look at it like, oh, this shouldn't be happening. There's like there's something there yet that I have to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you were saying, Cindy, uh, about you know, sometimes you get caught up in that moment and you just you, you lose yourself. I thought I had that. You know, I thought, oh yeah, the six seconds and counting windows, I could do that. We talked about last time. And then I went home, and my, my mom just pushed my button, and there was no six seconds. It was boom, boom. And then afterwards, I go, what happened? Mm-hmm. I got lost, mm-hmm. completely sucked in. And then I realized, okay, there's still a lot there. And it's because I think I want things to be different. I want her to be a different way. And and, um, and that's just and so I know there's learning that I have to do with myself with that. Right. But I think, you know, the whole concept with the six seconds is that when we know that we've lost it, that that's when we start counting. <laughs> that's the point when we start counting, is when we recognize that we've lost it, is, is that we need the six seconds in order to bring some more capacity to bring discernment in that situation. That's what that's for. So when an event happens, right, and then you're angry and you respond. Where does the six seconds supposed to start? It, right it, as soon as you recognize that you've lost it. What happens if it's already over, though? The confrontation's already over. Well, the, the, yeah, well, I mean, late. for many of us, it was as we catch it, you know, with the horses run halfway around the, the track. <laughs> you know, you know it's... <laughs> Whatever point. You catch it as soon as you can. And so if you've already blown up, and you catch it there, you take 10, 6 seconds or 15 seconds and then debrief. And the more you get used to catching it, then your, your capacity for catching it sooner will come. 
until you can hear her say something and you can hear feel your body yeah. and then you catch it right there yeah. before you lose it with your verbal speech you can actually time out put the phone down <laughs> she's doing whatever she's doing one two three four <laughs> five six seven okay mom So there's a combination of one on one hand that's really important to say, all right, so I lost it, and that doesn't feel great. But not to focus on that it doesn't feel great, to focus on it feels great when I can catch it a little bit sooner. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, one lap less of the horse, it's like, yeah, that was sooner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And I knew people didn't look at it like that, you know? Now that you say that, it's like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I came back and told her. I, I just couldn't handle it, and I didn't look at the positive side that oh, I was able to catch it a little bit sooner. You were able to catch it a little bit sooner, yeah. So what happens is, is that because we acclimate to our growth, we don't actually recognize that we've caught it sooner. We just recognize that we haven't caught it soon enough. It's yeah. the same problem. We're looking at the thing that's not good enough as opposed to actually how much growth we've already made. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 And had she not done that, I wouldn't have realized that I needed to work on that. Right, and right. I wouldn't walk around thinking, oh, I got it all under all your wraps. <laughs> and I had no idea. Right. So, like, you know, it's often the case when people are in caves and, you know, doing intensive practice that they think they're all sorted because there's nothing to challenge them. <laughs> you know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.